I'd like to read three verses from Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 4, 4 through 6. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our faithful Lord, what a privilege it is to be able to gather as the people of God on the Lord's Day. Lord, to hear the word proclaimed. Lord, to enjoy the fellowship of the people of God. To learn, to study thy word. And Lord, as we consider a particular individual from, from the history of the church, thy church, Lord, we, we pray that we would, as we, as we consider how thou dost raise up men, but Lord, weak men, men who are still sinners by nature and, and sinners that are saved by grace. And we, we pray that we would learn lessons from them today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning I want to share some of my recent studies on a fellow named uh, Gottschuk. How many have heard of the name? Never heard of him. A few, a few of us? Okay. Uh, he, he was born in the early 800s AD. Um, and we want to just, as we go through, I do have a, a short PowerPoint to, if it works... We want to cover some of these topics. We just look at some of the broader historical context. We want to look at his early life, what he taught regarding predestination, and how that view of predestination impacted the way he presented, taught, preached it. We want to look at how people responded to it, to his position. And when some, if I don't know if we'll get to the one uh, reformed response, we'll see how much time we have and. Then I want to look at five or four or five lessons for today. In order to set the context, I just wanted to, this is what I really wanted the presentation or PowerPoint for, was to give a picture of where this fellow lived, grew up, and some of the places he was interacting with. So politically at the time, just towards the, when he was born, Charlemagne, Emperor Charlemagne was still in power. He was the emperor of, he was a Frankish king um, who, as you can see, in the dark gray was the Frankish empire in the late 700s. And he was pushing in particularly in this direction up into Saxony. And as, as he pushed in, 
as he conquered those areas and then down into Italy and Lombardia, Bavaria, these are all names that we don't recognize some of them anymore. He became what was known as the, the Roman Empire by, eight, by 800. And he was a Roman emperor from about 800 until 814 when he died. After Charlemagne, we have Louis, his son, called Louis the Pious, uh, who reigned and covered most of Gottschalk's life. Um, this fellow would rule on against Gottschalk at one point during, during his life. Some of the major issues that the, at the political level that they would have been dealing with during this time would have been barbarian attacks from Saxony and Bavaria up into the, into their, the Frankish Empire. But there was also Vikings from the north coming down along the, through the English Channel and then down across the Atlantic Ocean side. We also have Muslims attacking from the south and from the southeast into uh, Europe. Some of his policies that directly impacted Gottschalk were particularly Charlemagne. Um, some of his policies were forced conversions and deportation. So as Charlemagne was conquering, particularly into Saxony, he forced many of the many of the Saxons at this time were pagans. They worshipped the sun, moon, and stars, the animals, the trees, um, anything but the one true God. And as Charlemagne went in, he often forced Christianity on these, rather than preaching the gospel through the ministers of the word, um, calling sinners to repentance. He forced them, forced them to be baptized. And in that era, baptism incorporated you into Christianity and into the church. He also had, in order to get rid of rebellion, he had forced deportations. It's kind of like the Israelites as they were, as they were forced out of the land, deported to Babylon. He, he deported people from one area to the next. And Goshuk would have been in this category, it is his, particularly his dad, and mom were forced out of Saxony into a region up in this area of the Frankish Empire. The church in these days was a universal church. There was one church at this time, the Roman, as we know it now, the Roman Catholic Church. The East and West split had not yet occurred, so it was one big umbrella of a church, one denomination, everybody under, under one man, the hierarchical structure, the Pope. The Pope at the time of Gottschalk's birth was Leo III, and we're not going to go through all the Popes in between because there were many of them during his life. And then towards the end of his life, we have Leo IV, and there was probably seven or eight in between that. It was a, the, the Roman Catholic Church was fragmented uh, in terms of its leadership, but it was a very hierarchical structure um, as it is still is today. Some of the major issues that the church was dealing with at this point, um, we have three major controversies during this time period. We have the what's called the Filioque Clause controversy, 
which eventually led to the separation of the East and the West. That's where we believe, it was part of the confession, we believe that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The West believes that. That's what we hold to till this day and, and confess in our, in our confessions. But the East believed the Holy Spirit only proceeded from the Father. And they still hold that, the Eastern Orthodox Church still holds that position till today. There was a Lord's Supper controversy a little bit earlier than Gottschalk, um, dealing with the promotion of transubstantiation at its origins of that doctrine. Um, it was not dealt with properly. It was not cut off instantly in, the, in that early time period. And that doctrine continued to progress and became one of the major doctrines that the Reformation uh, addressed and had to deal with. And then we have the what we call the predestination controversy, which centers around the fellow we're going to look at today. Godstuck was born to a, a Saxon father and mother. His father and mother had been deported from from Saxony into a part part of the Frankish Empire, and somewhere early in Godstuck's life, his mom and dad disappear from his life. He was he was given as a gift to a monastery in Fulda. So the red dot up at the top there. He was given as a gift around the age of nine. We're not a hundred percent sure when when that was. Uh, if it was if he was nine, seven, somewhere in there, in the year eighteen fourteen. He studied there, had some great teachers, he demonstrated a lot of potential and he had a lot of gifts. By 824, when he was about 18 or 19, he was forced by the monastery to take monastic vows. So he had been given there as a gift to, to learn to study, but not as he was taking on at the age of nine. But at the age of 18 or 19, he was forced to take on these monastic vows. He complained about this decision and he appealed it and tried to overturn it. He was granted the permission to be released from the monastic vows, but his supervisor, the abbot of the monastery at Fulda, was, did not like that decision, and he appealed it to a synod, a local synod, which ruled in the favor of the abbot of Fulda, a man named Rabanus a man who would become a fierce opponent of Gottschalk in years to come. The synod was presided over by the Louis the Pious, the emperor. Um, so we see the mixture of church and state here, heavily involved politics in the church and vice versa. And it was, so he was, he didn't appeal the decision by the, the synod. He took it. But he asked to be allowed to move from Fulda, out of the care of Rabanus, the abbot. And he moved to an area which is in now present-day France, up in this area. He attended a monastery at Corby for a while, a monastery at Reims, and finally settled at a monastery in Orbe, which is where his name is associated with Gottschalk of Orbe. 
Corby was at this time a center for where the gospel was proclaimed, missions was active. Many missionaries went from the monastery of Corby up into England and to the Vikings and brought the gospel into Norway, into those Scandinavian countries. So he was influenced there. But it was his time at Orby that became very influential in his life. It was here that he was exposed to the writings of Augustine. And he really appreciated Augustine's thought on the sovereignty of God and his in grace and predestination. And he dug into it and developed his own position on, on these topics. In 835, he became a priest. The pre, being a priest allowed you to move more freely from place to place. If you were just a monk, you were kind of confined to the, to the monastery that you were associated with. And being a priest, he then traveled on a missionary endeavors to Friol and Dalmatia and was involved in mission work in those regions. It was here on the mission field and also as he came back and settled in somewhere in northern Italy that his teachings on predestination became more prominent and began to be challenging the existing thought of the Roman Catholic Church. The ideas of semi-Pelagianism and transubstantiation, this idea of universal atonement, where he was kind of butting heads with people who were teaching these doctrines. So what did Gottschalk teach? Well, to understand his views of predestination, we, we need to... Step back. He taught what was called a double predestination. So that God chose all the elect and predestinated them to eternal life. And God chose and predestinated the, the reprobate to eternal punishment. Um, so the elect to eternal life, the, the reprobate to eternal punishment. And he writes in one of his confessions, I, God shook believe and confess and profess and testify from God the Father, through God the Son, in the God the Holy Spirit, and both affirm and approve before God and his saints that predestination is twofold, either of the elect to rest or the reprobate to death. So he taught this twofold doctrine of predestination. He rooted his doctrine of predestination in the character of God, which is, which is wonderful. But he only focused on two, of, two attributes of God in particular. The omnipotence, the all-power, almighty hand of God, and God's unchangeable character, his immutability. The character of God grounded his doctrine of predestination. Steve Lawson says that Gottschalk saw a connection between the omnipotence and the unchangeable character of God and his eternal plan. Because God himself is immutable, therefore his eternal election is unchangeable. This is what Gottschalk contended. The focus on immutability of God is seen in in the following statement from, from Gottschalk. 
He says, For just as immutable God before the foundation of the world, immutably predestined to eternal life, all his, all his elect, through his gratuitous grace, the same immutable God, through his just judgment, likewise immutably predestined to deserved eternal death, absolutely all the reprobate, who at the judgment day will be condemned because of their evil merits. On the omnipotence of God, he, he writes, Our omnipotent God, the creator and maker of all creatures, has deigned it to be the, to be the gratuitous repairer and restorer of all the elect alone. Over and over in his writings, you will see these words of immutability and the omnipotent God are grounding his understanding of the doctrine of predestination. As we, if you, I don't know if I have time, but I just want to mention it here. If you read the Canizador Head 1, and the grounding of our understanding, the Reformed understanding of predestination, what is it grounded in? Does anyone know? What is election and God's the broader doctrine of predestination grounded in? And what, what primarily what characteristic of God? His mercy and grace. Yes, he it, it will acknowledge, and you will see that he it is an unchangeable do, um, election. It is because he is all-powerful that he can work out this doctrine. But it is grounded in grace and in mercy. And this, this is one area that Goshuk was weak on, and it shows up in the way he taught, as we will see. So how did God choose, according to Goshuk? How did God choose those whom he elected and those who would be reprobate? Well, it was in the basis of God's foreknowledge. The foreknowledge of God became the, the basis for how God chose an individual to be reprobate or to be elected. He writes, It is certainly evident and sufficiently clear and obvious that you, speaking of God, have foreknown and predestined instantly. And then his discussion on the reprobate. He writes, He equally predestined the devil and himself, the head of all the demons, with all the apostate angels, and also with the reprobate humans, namely his members, to rightly, to rightly eternal death, on account of their own future, but most certainly, which is most certainly foreknown evil merits. So he because God foreknew that they're evil, that they would be evil, and that they would have, they would always live evilly. That's why God predestinated them to be reprobate. And on the basis for election is not as clear, but it seems to be a mixture of grace and foreknowledge. He says. I believe and confess that the omnipotent and immutable God has gratuitously foreknown, so graciously foreknown, all those who he would predestinate. But he doesn't give a basis, foreknown in what sense. He, he says that God foreknew, but on 
what account. In other places, he tends to lean to be more, more to the grace of God, um, but it's not as clear. He seems to have this heavy emphasis on the, that God was, that not all people are saved, which we would wholly agree with him. There is an elect and there is the reprobate, but he had this emphasis on the, the, the predestination of the reprobate. And it impacted his teaching and preaching. We have no sermons from Godshuk, so we cannot actually go back to his own words on this and how it was presented. Most of his works are destroyed. What we do have is through letters between other Roman Catholic theologians that have been preserved. His opponents, he had two primary opponents who, who pursued him in his teaching. They were Rabbanus, the abbot of Fulda, and they, there was another monk or abbot who later became the archbishop of Reims, um, Heinmark of Reims, and they were not afraid to put Godshuk in a negative light in their writing. They didn't speak well of him. Uh, for instance, uh, I don't know who wrote this, either Rabanus or Hinkmar. Godshuk's known to you by name, face, and conduct, but long known to us by the rotten reputation of his wretched way of life and the abomination of his perverse preaching. They were not afraid to, to paint him in, in a very negative, negative light. And yet... What they say about his, his presentation compared to what others are saying about him seems to be fairly accurate. So they, they seem to paint a, a fairly accurate picture. And in one of the writings of Hinkmar, he kind of outlines what seems to be five major points of one of Gottschalk's sermons. He, they, Hinkmar begins by saying, he did not use the same manner that John the Baptist or Paul used in preaching, where they called sinners to repentance. He says, Hinkmer, or Gottschalk was not offering the, the call to repentance, repent and believe. And then in his outline of the sermon, Hinkmar continues, he says, this is what Gottschalk was teaching, and this is the order of the presentation. Therefore, before all ages, from the beginning, God made anything or everything. And he predestined those whom he willed to the kingdom and predestined those whom he willed to destruction. And then he said, and that those who have been predestined to destruction, they cannot be saved. And those who are predestined to the kingdom cannot perish. And then Third, the third point he said about Godshuk's preaching is that God does not will that all men are, be saved, but only those who are saved. And in the words of the apostle, who wills all men to be saved, in, one, in Timothy, 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, he says that the all, Godshuk, so Hankmar is saying that Godshuk says the all means only those who are saved. And then fourthly, he said, Christ did not come to save all, nor did he suffer for all, but only for those 
who are saved by the mystery of his passion. And then last, he says, and after the first man fell by free choice, none of us can use free choice to do good, but only to do evil. And in many ways, as we hear those individual statements from Goshuk, we would say, yes, we agree. But it's the, the broader package of Goshuk's presentation that um, comes into, into question. A, a minister, a, a, a faithful, what we seems to be a faithful gospel minister from Lyon's, and there's actually a number of them, Lyon, France. So down here seems to be a pocket in this area of gospel-centered uh, priests and, and monks at this time who are teaching faithfully. And a couple of them took the, took the time to write some very lengthy letters to Goshuk, uh, encouraging him, warning him, challenging him on the overall presentation. They were generous towards him. They called him a brother who, who, was, who was passionate about this topic. He saw, he saw Gotchuk as a brother in Christ. And he, and he wrote to him out of deep concern so that the Lord would, would as he says, grant him, that's Gotchuk, profitable and true words for, or that, God, that the Lord would grant profitable and true words to Gotchuk's consolation and instruction. And may he prepare and calm your spirit so that you, that's Gotchuk, accept what we are going to say to you with pious meekness and humility. And having put aside animosity and love for contention, so it seems like Godchuck loved to stir up strife and contention, um, according to Amalo, this fellow from Lyon. You would accept the words that are not ours, but those of God, and may submit your spirit and mind to them in sincere piety. But then he, he, he gets to the heart. He says, It displeases us much that you think and say so harshly and disorderly and brutally about divine predestination. We no less detest and abhor that you so burst in flames against those who are worthy of eternal death. That you said they are, were irrevocably and mutably predestined to perdition. So it's, uh, Gotchuk is not offering the free offer of the gospel. Uh, it's just a, if you're going to be saved, you're going to be saved. If you're not going to be saved, if you're reprobate, you will not be. And there's no call to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The critique of Gotchuk follows on two lines. The Roman Catholics and Hankmar uh, and Rabanus, but also um, Amalo from Lyon, does hints at two, two areas where they believe Goshuk was an heir. He was saying, and for the Roman Catholic Church, because it was undermining their idea of, of good works to salvation, they, was, they said, if this is true and if this is what you're going to teach, people are just going to live however they want. If God's going to save them, God's going to save them. And so he says, we're going to see people living just nominal lives, doing what they want to do. Or those who are really searching for the Lord and want to get to, to, to know the Lord, that the Lord has saved them, are going to despair because it's 
they can't do anything. That was the Roman Catholic's position on, on, on his teaching. It would lead to a nominalism that you could, you would ask, start asking these questions. They said, why is it necessary for me to work for my salvation? Remember, Roman Catholic theology is steeped in merit for salvation. For if I do good, but have not pre- been predestined to life, it profits me nothing. But if I do evil, it is in no way an obstacle for me. For the predestination of God causes me to come to eternal life. This was how questions that were being raised by, by some Roman Catholic theologians. Or it would lead people to despair of their salvation. Amalo, in his brotherly love and pastoral care, he methodically goes through and critiques Godshuk's presentation of his doctrine. He said their damnation, he said people will be inclined to attribute their damnation to the fault of God rather than because they are sinners. And he provides a helpful analysis of the relationship between God's foreknowledge and predestination. He writes, He therefore eternally foreknew their future evil merits, but his foreknowledge did not impose necessity on them so that they could not be anything else, but he foresaw that they would not choose anything else. So Amalo from Lyon said, Yes, God foreknew that they would never repent and believe, but it was because they choose to live and continue in their sin is the reason they were reprobate. So Amalo noted the implications of Gottschalk's position that it would leave humanity without any hope or encouragement to seek after God, to repent of their sins, and to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Gottschalk would be eventually convicted of heresy. He would be flogged, publicly flogged. He was sent back to Orbe. And he continued to preach and teach there. The, the abbot of that monastery was favorable to him. And a number of years later, or a year later, uh, Heinrich of Reims summoned him to another synod. He was again tried. He presented his position from Scripture, he believed, and he then was convicted once again and flogged publicly. He, his books were burned, and he was sent to a monastery in just south of Reims. I'm not going to try to hold Villers. And he was imprisoned there for 20 years until his death. <laughs> He refused to recant his position, and he died there in isolation. For 20 years, he was in a cell on his own, alone, till, the, till he left this world. What I, would, I don't have time today. I would love to. Maybe another, maybe another session will dig into the Kings of Dort. Uh, chapter one or head one and look at the reform position of of predestination and how it's presented in, in its beauty it's it's marvelous 
Uh, but I would like to leave us with uh, a few lessons or takeaways from the life of Gottschuk. First one is, how we think about God is important. It impacts how we think and how we live in other areas of our lives. We need to think about God in his entirety, as a, a, in, in all of his attributes. Gottschalk focused so much in on the sovereignty, the immutability of God, which are beautiful doctrines and attribute aspects of our God. But God is all of his attributes. And we need to, to think about, reflect on, and let them impact every aspect of our life. We need to be balanced in our study of Scripture, related to the previous one. Not just get focused on one, one doctrine or one issue within the scope of Scripture. In responding to error, we must be careful to remain biblical. It's so easy to go from one error on this side of the, uh, in this ditch over here and swing as the pendulum, as, as it were, to this side. Um, but to find the biblical, narrow truth of what is truth. And it seems like Gotchuk, so opposed to semi-Pelagianism, swung over to the other side of uh, uh, almost a, like a hyper-Calvinistic view of predestination. I think we can learn from how others interacted with Gottschalk in, his, in some of his erroneous views or presentations of the, of the biblical truth of predestination. Be kind and generous in others, to others in our confrontation of their errors. As brothers and sisters in Christ, um, particularly following Amalo, he, he was generous to him kind to him, but yet faithfully pointed out what he believed was, was air in a, in a kind and uh, thoughtful manner, not skirting around the issues, but addressing them head on in faithfulness. And then the second or the last one that I want to raise is as, as we, and we can see this as we study the history of the church, God is constantly raising up men those and those within the church who proclaim truth, who point out error, and he preserves his church, even through empty vessels, weak vessels, like a, like a Gottschalk. Gottschalk in his time was fighting a, a, a massive behemoth of, a, of, a, of the era of semi-Pelagianism in the church. And he raises them up to, to, to bring this to light. We pray that and we trust that God is continuing to do the same to this day. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for faithful men. Lord, even weak men who thou dost raise up to proclaim the the whole truth, the rich truths of God's word. Lord, we do so with trembling. We do so with the awareness that what we say can have an impact on so many people for so many generations. And we pray that we would be faithful, faithful to the word, bound to it. Lord, we help us, we pray. Bless us in the rest of our Lord's Day as we, as we spend time with family and friends and as we worship this evening. Give us the grace and strength that we need today. 
In Christ's beautiful and precious name, amen.